Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Come on in. Grab your stool. We're ready to go. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. And Jim, before we get going, um, I don't know what you think. I'm kind of an old school guy, but I watch football games. I don't have to play in them. So when I heard that there was a three, four, maybe even more feet of snow headed to Buffalo for the Bills-Browns game this weekend, my old school thinking is, this is going to be awesome. Instead, the NFL has moved it to Detroit where they'll play indoors and nobody will have to trudge through uh, a yard of snow vertically. But what do you think about this? I mean, uh, I, I believe that as long as, you know, the elements are not life-threatening, you play the game where you're supposed to play it, or am I just uh, insane here? Well, when you say life-threatening, I mean, Greg, you live in the Northern Virginia area and you know how people handle snow and ice <laughs> as is. I assume drivers in the Buffalo area are more experienced and know what they're doing when it comes to, you know, snow and ice. But obviously, anything resembling five or six feet turns into a real crisis situation. And the whole point of having the game is to have fun for the fans and for them to enjoy it. If they do it, it'll be interesting to see who in Detroit chooses to show up for that game. If I remember correctly, a couple of years, maybe like, you know, five, ten years ago, Similar circumstances, giant blizzard headed towards Buffalo, and the Jets and the Bills did a game. The game was, was supposed to be on a Sunday. They moved it to either Monday or Tuesday. It must have been at Monday because the Tuesday was only done during the pandemic. And the Jets lost terribly in a game played in Detroit. So even when the team can't play in their home stadium and they're dealing with this crisis, et cetera, even then the Jets could not capitalize on that. Um, but, uh, so yeah, probably best to do what's safe for everybody. It's the same. You can't really postpone games for bad weather the way you do with baseball. You got to kind of stick to the schedule. Uh, good news. Yeah. Hey, Hey, bonus game, Detroit fans. You know, you want to watch the Browns and bills go enjoy yourself this weekend. Well, uh, the Bills also play at Detroit on Thanksgiving, so it's possible they're just going to stick around. Uh, one, ga- one game being the home team and one game being the road team, so uh, no problems there. Uh, I would love to make a joke about Lions fans actually having the home team win a game this this Sunday, but when the Bears just lost at home to the Lions, it makes that joke fall a little flat. But uh, anyway, host brings eternal. The Bears seem to be getting a little bit better. Uh, I got they got the Falcons this weekend. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Jim, on to our good martini now. And we've had a lot of talk about leadership elections for, you know, uh, congressional leaders that'll take uh, their positions in January. We've had a lot of talk about 2024 this week with the Trump announcement and uh, a couple of different Senate announcements. Kind of ignores the fact that in 18 days, we've got a really important election in front of us, and that is the Georgia Senate runoff between the Democratic incumbent, Raphael Warnock, the Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. It was nip and tuck. Warnock edged out Walker, but he didn't get to 50%, and you have to have more than 50% to avoid the runoff. So here we go. December 6th, it's coming up. And while it seems like a lot of Republicans are focused on almost anything else... (laughs) We have one Republican who's got his eye on the ball, and that is Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp, who, of course, is fresh off a convincing victory over Stacey Abrams last week. Nowhere close to a runoff. I think he was north of 53 percent. And he is going to campaign with Herschel Walker this weekend in the Atlanta suburbs. And that is not all. This is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Now, Kemp could be pivotal to Walker's election quest. He directed his prized get-out-the-vote machine to help Walker, who finished the general election trailing Warnock by less than one percentage point, or roughly 35,000 votes out of more than 3.9 million cast. And senior GOP strategists hope the governor, fresh off a rematch victory over Abrams, can help convince wary Republicans concerned about Walker's personal baggage and fitness for the job to swallow their misgivings. They see the governor as a uniquely powerful messenger to those skeptical voters. In all, Walker received roughly 200,000 fewer votes than Kemp. Walker's drop-off was particularly pronounced in Metro Atlanta, a nexus of mainstream Republicans where Donald Trump also struggled. But Walker also fared surprisingly poorly in deep red areas of North Georgia. In eight counties, Walker ran at least six percentage points behind Kemp, and in 47 others, his totals were four to six points lower than Kemp's tally. If Walker had matched Kemp's vote total in just Fulton County, he would have won the election outright. So, of course, it's all hands on deck for the for the Republican Party for the most part right now to get back to 50-50, where a disgruntled Kirsten Sinema or more likely Joe Manchin uh, can put a thorn into uh, Chuck Schumer's plans. Obviously, a Republican House helps to derail their ambitions legislatively as well. But even when it comes to things only the Senate acts on, like nominations and so forth, uh, that could that could be significant. So uh, good to see Governor Kemp being one of the few, and there should be more people concerned about what's happening in two and a half weeks here. Greg, Herschel Walker should be thanking his lucky star for Brian Kemp. Look, when you have the, the kind of results we saw where Brian Kemp won handily, but Herschel Walker narrowly trailed in that Senate race, it means that there's a decent number of voters there who were Kemp Warnock voters. And you figure those folks are more likely to come out and vote in the runoff because the guy they voted for is still there and was the leader. And they probably like, OK, just show up on December 6th and then we we win and we keep Democratic control of the Senate. We even end up with a better turnout or better result than last time when it was 50-50. I don't know there are that many Georgia Republicans who intend to stay home. I don't know if there are that many Georgia Republicans who are pro-lifers who felt like, well, if I'm going to go, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll vote for Herschel Walker if the Senate is at stake. But I won't vote for him if it's the, the fate of the Senate is resolved. But they don't need to be that many of them for this to turn out. Obviously, these are two guys who have been fighting neck and neck for, you know, a good portion of the year. Um, I think you're a little, you know, I, I was feeling confident that Walker would win it in a runoff. And I think, I thought there was likely that it would either be uh, control of the Senate would be at stake or that Republicans would be seeking to expand a majority in the Senate not trying to minimize uh, their their you know gap in the Senate. And so we'll see how things shake out. I don't think the immediate turn to presidential 2024 presidential talk is good for Walker. It's easy to get the sense that people have kind of forgotten about that you know the Senate Republicans have already held their leadership elections. you know, it feels like the country kind of moved on from it. And look, the rest of the country has these other big issues to talk about. But if for Republicans, the 20 you know the election the midterm elections aren't done yet, We'll see how things go. If Walker wins, I think Kemp gets a decent amount of the credit. If he does not, uh, I think you can say Kemp did the best he could and that Walker was a challenging figure to get elected, even what should have been a good circumstance like this year's. Yeah, you mentioned the gap between uh, Kemp and Walker. I-, I wonder how many people who did vote for Walker did so because they were motivated to vote for Kemp. So they showed up and they're like, well, as long as I'm here, of course, Herschel Walker, I don't want Raphael Warnock back in the Senate. That guy's uh radical leftist. But uh, now with 
this being the only issue on the ballot, uh, be curious to see uh, how many of those same people uh, show up. But with uh, Governor Kemp's get out the vote machine behind him, uh, that's a huge plus for Herschel Walker. And uh, and we will see how it goes. I'm, I'm not super confident in how this is going to go uh, for a lot of the reasons we've already discussed. But uh, uh, as I think it was Tom Cotton said this week, uh, 51-49 and 50-50, it's a bigger difference than a lot of people realize. All right, on to our... Bad Martini now, Jim, and I heartily applaud you for digging into an issue that you fully admit in today's morning jolt that you do not consider yourself an expert on. I certainly do not as well, and that is the world of crypto. And so this whole collapse of FTX, uh, which is filing for bankruptcy now, and you point out in your uh, newsletter today that the guy who tried to make sense of the Enron collapse is even more horrified by what he's seeing here with FTX. It was built on a house of cards and no real assets. And there seems to have been a deliberate effort to make sure there's no paper trail on uh, the decisions that were made along the way. That is an extraordinarily generic description of what happened here because I can't really explain the details any better than that from my own. But you have dug into this. You did an excellent job. What do we need to know and how does it affect us as a nation and politically? Well, first of all, if you put your money into FTX, I'm sorry, it's not looking good for you. So first question, what is cryptocurrency, right? You you reach into your wallet, you have these green things called dollars, right? You know what that is, that's easy to understand. That is US currency. You go travel abroad, you use euros or the British pound or something. Okay, that's another currency, but they're all backed by the government that issues them, right? A, A cryptocurrency isn't really backed by anything. But then again, you could say that's kind of true, you know, um, so it's just a Bitcoin or something like that is worth whatever everybody else thinks it's worth. Now, if you're like me, you kind of didn't get it. <laughs> you're kind of like, well, it, it, it's the same as like um, anything else where you'll believe is worthwhile, Be- uh, you know, baseball cards, right? Or a stock or something like that. Uh, for all those of us who had Lucent stock way back in the day, right? Almost anything can be used as a currency, right? After Halloween at grade school, you're trading, you know, I'll give you two bags of MMs for a Snickers bar or something like that, right? So anything can be used as currency. Now, one of the things about cryptocurrency is that it has no physical form, right? You can't touch it. You can't put it in your physical wallet. You can put it in an electronic wallet and you can, you know, buy it, sell it, trade it, you know, do anything you want with it. And there are a whole bunch of cryptocurrencies out there. Now, if you look at this from the outside and say, okay, but this is all kind of held aloft by the widespread belief that it's worth something. And if that goes away one day, then all this cryptocurrency that I've got is worthless. Well, it turns out you're kind of like Larry David in the FTX commercial, who ironically probably was right when he said he didn't get it. And he felt like this FTX thing and cryptocurrency, eh, I don't get it. It's not going to be anything. You know, it turns out uh, less than a year after that Super Bowl commercial, FTX has effectively collapsed. Greg, this all goes back to a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried. And back in 2017, he you know uh, he was looking at how Bitcoin was being bought and sold in different countries, and apparently had really different prices from country to country. So you could buy Bitcoin in one country, then go to other ones, and I guess apparently South Korea was known for having a much higher price for it. And you could make money on it and sometimes make 60% just on the deal. So obviously this was a you know good, quick, easy way to make money. And he, you know, after doing this, he creates his own trading house, Alameda Research, after Alameda, where he lives in California. Achieves great financial success with this. Again, it's a cryptocurrency hedge fund. 
And then from that, he decides, okay, I'm going to create FTX, short for Futures Exchange. And this is going to be a market for trading different types of cryptocurrency. And so it's kind of like, I mean, you know, picture it, it's the cryptocurrency, all electronic, non-physical version of the New York Stock Exchange. Now, at the same time, he's also running Alameda, which is a hedge fund. So it's kind of like being, you know, the same guy who runs the New York Stock Exchange running Bridgewater Associates or BlackRock or something like that. Right? So if you're like, oh, that's a kind of odd, the same guy would be running the thing that's doing all the trading and one of the big you know, institutions that's doing the trading on that platform. Yeah, that is a little bit odd. And oh, by the way, now it's under investigation because apparently the money from one was being used for another. But this really goes back to about the beginning of this month, because this all happened really, first of all, FTX grew incredibly fast. It was only founded in 2019. And by early of last year, 2021, uh, the Miami Heats Arena was being called FTX Arena, right? Now, there are lots of big companies that have been around for a really long time that don't have any sports stadiums or arenas named after them, right? This became probably the best known cryptocurrency exchange in the world or in the United States, probably like the fifth or sixth biggest in the world, but it, it, was, a, it was a significant big one, valued at $32 billion earlier this year. The question then was, all right, so how much of this institution, how much of their money is what you and I would call real money, cash, US dollar, you know, actual you know, financial money, and how much of it is in cryptocurrency, which as we all know, is basically supported by the belief that it is worth something. And that the moment that goes away, it could you know, crash very quickly. Well, it turns out just as a beginning of November, this website called Coindesk reported that the Alameda rested on a foundation largely made up of a coin that a sister company invented and put further evidence that FTX, the trading platform, and Alameda, the hedge fund, were really, really close. And all of a sudden, this made people think, oh, okay, maybe this is not such a stable uh, platform at all. Maybe actually this thing is all kind of built on a house of cards. FTX goes to this the world's biggest crypto uh, trading platform, Binance, which I think is based over in China, or originally was based in China, and basically says, do you guys want to buy us? And Binance, for about a day or two, is like, oh, we'll take a look at this. And the thinking is that FTX, well, they've got value. They just can't take their cryptocurrency and turn it into what they call uh, fiat currency, or what you and I would call real money, real world currency. I said, okay, it's just going to take us some time. That's why we're you know, looking to sell ourselves to this other one that's got deeper actual cash reserves. Well, after about a day, Binance looks at some, sees something, and they're like, oh, nope, we're out. We're not doing the deal. And they make the statement saying, the issues are beyond our control or ability to help. Now, at that point, everybody knew this meant FTX had some sort of really big problem. FTX has since filed for bankruptcy. And as you, your listeners may have, as listeners may have heard yesterday, there's a new guy running the company, John J. Ray III. And he's the guy who is handling the cleanup of, of Enron and a bunch of other. When a corporation, uh, the you-know-what hits the fan, this is the guy they call to sort it all out. <laughs> well... He said this is the worst he'd ever seen. And you know, I don't usually quote at length from bankruptcy uh, declarations, and I won't go into too much, but just the quote, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems, integrity, and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. <laughs> In other words, the guy who is looking at the wreckage of Enron is like, oh no, this is much, much worse. <laughs> That's how bad this is. Uh, and it basically sounds like almost, not, the, the description from the bankruptcy filing 
makes the old management, including Bankman Freed, sound like Animal House. They didn't keep in any records. They didn't keep any appropriate books. Um, apparently, they were approving expenses by emoji, by texting each other. Um, it just was this uh, large amounts of the corporate funds were used to purchase homes and other personal items for employees and advisors. There was not documentation of this. Um, it just sounds like this. he's walking into um, the most dismal swamp of financial mismanagement and perhaps even, you know, fraud that you could possibly want to. So if you had your money in FTX, that money may have been going out the door as quickly as it was going in with no sense of it ever coming. You know, you're, you may never going to get may never get that money back. We're looking at a pound. You know, like I said, it was the company's value was estimated at 32 million billion. But maybe it wasn't that worth. It was never worth that much. Right now, it's believed that a million people have lost the money they invested in FTX, losing about $8 billion or so. Two other wrinkles here. One is that this guy was, at the, at the last cycle, the second biggest donor to Democrats next to George Soros. This guy was a huge Democratic Party donor. Um, it, you know, A lot of people speculate this was him wanting to buy friends, so to speak. Um, I, there's an interesting question of whether he was able to escape a certain amount of scrutiny because he was considered friends with Democrats and paid $12 million to have Bill Clinton give a speech and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, he had saying he was saying he was going to spend a billion dollars in political donations in the 2024 election cycle. That does not look likely to happen. Um, still a lot more of this story to be told, but it's kind of a fascinating epic collapse uh, of an institution that those a whole bunch of us, you know, didn't get crypto. And Greg, we're all exceptionally better off for not getting crypto, at least in these particular circumstances. Sometimes being clueless is a good thing. Um, so in terms of the timing on this, Jim, it seems like it was more related to FTX trying to be gobbled up by this bigger company uh, as opposed to election results. But when it's this big of a donor to, to the Democratic side, uh, more than a few people have said there are no coincidences in politics. So what do you make of that? The impetus or the, or the trigger for all this was that um, report on November 1st. So, And there's no indication that there was anybody necessarily dragging their feet of, of you know, oh, let's hold this after the election or, or something like that. Uh, it's lucky for Democrats that this didn't occur like a month earlier or something like that. Um the, the money had already been allocated to Democratic campaigns. Uh, he, as far as I know, he's uh, Bankman Freed is still in the Bahamas. Um, for those who are thinking, you know, ah, now we've got him. I mean, did the Madoff donations really end up having any huge consequences? Did the John Corzine got, you know, uh, became governor of, uh, eventually he lost his, his bid for governor of uh, uh, New Jersey uh, to Chris Christie way back in the day. I don't think necessarily... There's going to be enormous financial consequences, uh, enormous political consequences of this. I'm not saying that it shouldn't. I'm just saying that I think not enough people know who Bankman Freed is. Um, and there's at this point no indication the Democrats knew what was going on. I've seen a lot of people you know, throw, throwing around this theory that uh, Ukraine was heavily invested in FTC. As far as that has not been proven, uh, Ukraine didn't have a lot of money to put into FTX. Uh, they basically were. Uh, trying to fight the war. Now, they did have crypto and that basically FTX was helping them turn their crypto funds into like what you and I would call real money. Um, but that was in the neighborhood of like a couple million dollars, not the massive scheme. I know people want to believe that, ah, this is all 
goes back to Joe Biden and some elaborate scheme to divert taxpayer money to Ukraine in exchange for donations and stuff. At this point, guys, the story is bad enough as is. It is yet another one of these whiz kids who's supposed to be the next big thing running what is either incompetency or perhaps, you know, increasingly likely looks like a scam and taking the money and run and hiding in the Caribbean. Hopefully they get this guy and hopefully they hold this guy accountable. Wow. I think you're probably right about uh, the political ramifications of this, because even if there was a deeper political connection here, I always go back in situations like this to 1997 when Fred Thompson was chairing the hearings into the Clinton's Chinese fundraising. And uh, while there was quite a bit of uh, alarming evidence there, uh, the complexity of the case had everybody rolling their eyeballs and yawning. And so then, you know, a few months later, oh, relationship with an intern. Oh, we can talk about that one. We can, we can get behind that story because we understand that. Uh, yes. So you got you to keep it pretty simple for the media. And this one's got too many different layers, I think. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, I kind of, like, ironically, I think if, if this was indeed a scam, and these guys knew they didn't have the money for all the investments that were being made here. And they knew that the value of the company was based on this currency that was always very shaky. You know, it's it's very bad, but it's not the sort of thing where you can easily, you know, like, oh, sex scam, right? You know, you, you get that. It, it's complicated. And part of what made the scam work was everybody's sense that like, well, I don't really understand cryptocurrency, but I'm sure somebody else does. I'm sure these guys do. And the perception, oh, these guys worked at Google. These guys worked at Facebook. They're Silicon Valley. They're tech bros. These guys get it. That was kind of at the heart of it. Is this, oh, it's too complicated for you mere mortals to understand. But trust us, we can spin thread into gold. And that's how we got here. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And last night was just bizarre on Twitter. Uh, you had uh, Elon Musk with his ultimatum of, uh, you know, engineers, you need to be willing to work harder at, at intense levels. And if you can't, you're going to be locked out of the building at uh, 5 p.m. and so forth. And then we had this almost weird death vigil going on on Twitter because uh, these engineers supposedly resign and quit on mass. And so there was nobody left to make uh, Twitter run, supposedly. And so you had all these Titanic metaphors going on, people sharing where else they could be found online, people who actually made connections and and found friends that helped them through difficult times, basically weeping through their tweets and nothing happened. <laughs> this morning, it's still there. There might be a few journalists who left, which would probably be a good thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and so in the end, I don't know how long this is going to going to last. Uh, Elon Musk, at least in his tweets, doesn't seem all that concerned about it. So once again, Jim, we've had a uh, a Twitter spasm where everybody thinks the world is ending and it turns out absolutely nothing has changed. Now, Greg, as someone who's on Twitter and who you know will share my articles on it, enjoy going back and forth with people about the Jets and stuff, enjoy you know tweeting during the Super Bowl, making fun of the commercials. What's this FTX thing? Um, I, I, you know, I, if Twitter actually disappeared one day, I would miss those parts of it. You know, there are a couple of people I've kind of got to know through Twitter who I interact primarily through Twitter. And that's, that's nice. That's fun. But you know, if it went away, it's not like I would suddenly feel like, uh, I lost all ability to communicate with the world. And you know, that this was, you know, akin to mushroom clouds and the end of the world or something like that. It was fascinating to watch people reacting it that way. I will not pretend to fully understand everything that's going on there at Twitter. Some of this seems to stem from the fact that people don't really know 
I mean, they may think they know, but they don't really know how many employees do you actually need to run Twitter? How many employees do you need to run Twitter well? My, I've heard from some people I trust that actually uh, Twitter was actually ludicrously overemployed. That in fact, the workforce had lots of people, by the way, working from home, uh, not necessarily fully accountable to their bosses as much as Elon Musk wanted them to be. That basically there was a lot of fat to trim. And also the meant idea is that Elon, Elon Musk walks through the door and the certain number of people who work there think they know what he stands for, think they know what he believes and believe, well, I hate that and I'm going to do everything I can from the inside to undermine him. So there's a school of thought that says that uh, the, the uh, you know, what made Twitter a valuable company was what it was. You know, most companies like to say, our most valuable asset is our people. Or as they say at Soylent Corporation, the secret ingredient to our success is people. The irony is that maybe the people at Twitter were not actually the strength of the company, were in fact maybe an impediment. That in fact, basically, what put had evolved into this major platform for public discourse, that's what made it valuable. The audience made it valuable, not necessarily the people working there. And that Elon could make it into a better company by getting rid of everybody who didn't like him and who basically was willing to sabotage it from within, which indicated this was going to be a long, messy way. But apparently last night was supposed to be the apocalypse, and it didn't happen. So... I don't know whether people are going to say, oh, you know, we 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 miscalculated and Elon's going to destroy Twitter, you know, 48 hours from now or a week from now or a month from now or something. As far as I can tell this morning, everything on Twitter seems the same, which makes you think that basically it's amazing. You can generate panic. You can generate this sense of urgency and a crisis all based on some anonymous leaks and people saying, oh, without me, the place is going to fall apart, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's uh, overreaction on Twitter. Hard to believe something like that would happen on that platform. And I use it a lot for uh, for work. Uh, I probably spend too much time on there, to be honest. But, uh, you know, it's a great uh, way to get news faster than anywhere else. So if you follow the right institutions and uh, some sane people on there, like Jim Garrity, uh, you know, it could be an enjoyable experience. If you spend any time in the comment section after a significant post, well, you're doing yourself a disservice right there. But uh, in the end, uh, if it were to go away, I think life would go on for just about everyone. So... Jim, on that note, good luck to the Jets against the Patriots this weekend. Good luck to the Bears against the Falcons. And we'll do this all again on Monday. See you then. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you haven't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings, your kind reviews. Remember to get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Go out and get Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil, Christmas Just Around the Corner. And of course, follow us on Twitter while it still exists. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend and join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Hey, this is Todd Herman, host of The Todd Herman Show. You might have heard me on Rush Limbaugh's show. I was a regular fill-in for about eight years. God rest Rush. I now do a show out of the high mountains of free America because, you know, I got exiled from Seattle. I'm beginning to think, trying to put myself in the heads of the elites. And you know what I'm figuring out? In their minds, they have to parent us because, of course, we're rebellious teenagers who want to be able to drive gas-powered cars and have guns. Check out The Todd Herman Show every day on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.